What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, founder and president of the Jew3 Project. I know we haven't had podcasts in a while. It's just been a busy season over here where I was writing a book that I'm so excited that it's going to be coming out very, very soon. But we have Courageous Conversations 2023 coming up August 31st through September 2nd. Yes, it is three days this time. The first day, August 31st, is a pre-conference event at the Museum of the Bible where we will screen Unspoken and the Juneteenth documentary also have Q&A around those documentaries and then a training session on how to have courageous conversations in your everyday life. And then September 1st and 2nd will be the seven conversations that we normally have. I'm so excited. We have everything from um, how to heal from church hurt to how our politics should inform our faith and is God able to handle our questions. It is going to be a phenomenal time that you don't want to miss. We're back in Washington, D.C. at National Community Church. You can register at CourageousCombos.org. And also, we have a special offer for you, 25% off for online admission or virtual admission. So if you're not able to join us in person, you can join us in line, online and use the code FAITH25. Again, that's FAITH. F-A-I-T-H 25 FAITH in all caps and you'll get 25% off in person or virtual admission whatever you choose uh, for your registration type. So register today and join us and also for the next few weeks you'll be able to hear some conversations from Courageous Conversations 22 on the podcast. So you don't want to miss this year. It's going to be amazing. And I'm so excited for our theme, Renewed Faith, moving from deconstruction to reconstruction. So join us as we help you reconstruct your faith after spaces and moments of deconstruction. I hope to see you there. Grace and peace and God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Courageous Conversations 2022, day two. I just have a few housekeeping things before we jump in. Uh, the first is uh, we are going to jump into a conversation uh, about mental health. So of course we wanna make you aware of resources. So before jumping in, um, we wanna make you aware of if you're interested or you know someone that's in need of a therapist, psychologist, counselor, uh, anywhere in the country, uh, we do have a resource available via the Whole Brother Mission. There is a table out there, has a network of over 3,000 mental health professionals. Uh, and if you, uh, from an individual perspective or a corporate perspective, are looking for mental health services, that resource is available. And it's also in your conference booklet. Also, another housekeeping thing is uh, Dr. Nicole Massey-Martin uh, had a conflict and was not able to be with us today, but in her stead, we have Ms. Dorothea Crenshaw, uh, licensed uh, certified social worker uh, in the area, so a local therapist, so that resource is available to you as well. So with that in mind, uh, we're gonna jump into our, our conversation today and just some, some background for this conversation. Uh, last year, we had one called Truth and Trauma that discussed uh, the difficulties as it relates to the experience and uh, like lived experience and how that affects how we perceive truth. Uh, this year, we'll pivot that conversation into the idea of the spiritual experience and whether those things as a Christian serve our, our mental health or potentially work against it. So just to open things up, uh, our first question will be uh, a defining mental health 
uh, for each panelist, uh, good mental health. Uh, but then to tag along with that question, uh, is good mental health always going to be synonymous with good spiritual health? So after defining mental health, I'd like you to, to, to unpack this idea of if that is always going to be coupled with good spiritual health. So anyone that wants to jump out there, could you define mental health and then uh, help us understand if the two go hand in hand, spiritual and mental health? Well, perhaps I can start. When I am looking at mental health, I'm looking at what is making for quality of life. Um, relationships that are balanced, the ability to take care of oneself, the ability to integrate one's faith into one's life in a way that is helpful, and to allow one to live with a sense of purpose. So when I'm working with my clients, those are the areas that I'm seeking to enforce in their lives as I'm helping them with their mental health. Thank you. Similarly, I think about mental health as being connected to our ability to manage stress, our awareness of our emotions and how to manage those, how to engage in healthy relationships, and then how to have a positive self-concept. In terms of how that is connected to spirituality, I think our spiritual health informs all of those areas, right? Our understanding of God and particularly our sense of what it means to be in community in the context of faith community informs the way we navigate relationships, the way we understand ourselves. So for me, those things are absolutely connected. Got it. Gentlemen. Sure, so I'll, I'll go ahead and jump in. So I agree with everything that's been said already as well. I think in addition, I would also just add in terms of how we navigate both the joys and the challenges that happen in our life is also a very key piece of our mental health and how we define that. In terms of the spiritual aspect, I would say, maybe even posing it as a question, I would argue that it's, it would be hard to say that we're spiritually healthy if we don't also address our mental health because that is a key component to that and that's something we'll probably unpack as we go through as well. As I would say, I agree with all of the statements <laughs> that have already been made. The only thing that I would, would add is that the ancient view of spirituality also connected with mental health in terms of the idea that your internal and external were always connected, recognizing sacred kinship and connection with all creation is a part of your mental health. The ability to be able to communicate, manage stress, have a good self-image was also connected with your relationship with God. Got it, got it. Okay, so we, we got some definitions out of the way, so we want to make our way further, uh, deeper into the conversation. And, and you may notice uh, there's a sense of um, the heat turning up in terms of the question. So I just turned the dial up a little bit. So with this next question, uh, I want to get at uh, this idea of suffering. Uh, as we know, there's kind of an understood reality as it relates to Christianity where we should expect suffering. Uh, suffering as Jesus did. So with that in mind, uh, how, would you, how would you counsel uh, someone who is navigating through faith and the suffering, uh, Christian faith and the suffering that comes with it? How do you reconcile, support, or counsel someone navigating faith and suffering? 
The challenge that I've seen with Christians that come to me for therapy is that very often they feel that they need to maintain an image, that they need to act like they have the victory, that they're okay, and they're not. And so they'll start off with uh, the whole, I'm blessed and highly favored litany, and praise the Lord, you know, every other word. And I let them do that. And then I say, now tell me. <laughs> I do. I let them do now it. do it again. Yeah, and then I tell them, tell me how you really feel. And that's when I get the cursing and the, the really saying what's really in their heart. And I explain to them that God already knows that that's there. And so there's no need for them to put on the show that they're okay when they're really not. And that seems to bring a great deal of freedom to people to know that therapy is the place where they can get out the pain that they're really experiencing. They can say, and I ask people, are you angry with God? Yes, they are. They are angry with God. And I let them know God is not distressed. He's not going to fall off the throne. He, there is no um, wrong thing about saying, I'm angry because my child died. I'm angry because my family member just died of cancer and they suffered. And so giving them the freedom to say what's really in their heart is the first step to healing the suffering. I would add that often there's this religious demand that we sort of endure suffering in a certain way, right? That it, I mean, many of us have heard, well, this is just my cross to bear. And this idea that if I'm suffering, I have to be able to see the glory in it, or I have to be able to praise my way through it. Mm -hmm. And all of these kind of platitudes that, in my opinion, really glorify suffering in a way that sometimes people lose sight of the fact that they can seek help and support when they're suffering. And I think it's our job to remind people that even though we do suffer, that's a part of the human experience, to also acknowledge that God doesn't seek any inherent joy in our suffering, right? And that we really do need to be able to attend to ourselves. And as you said, to be in conversation with God about how distressing it is to have that pain and have to sit with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to, just to uh, follow up on those, I mean, those are great comments and just to, to um, elaborate a little bit further, I think there's so many important principles there. One, as you mentioned, just acknowledging it in the first place that the challenge is there and also knowing that there are ways we can address our suffering. So from my perspective as a neuroscientist, someone who studies the brain is trying to understand what's happening in the brain when we are in these different challenging situations, whether that's addiction, depression, or anxiety, I think it's really important to always remind people that our brains are part of our bodies and there's biology to that. So there are things that happen in our lives that can affect our brains. There are ways that we are born. We have certain you know, chemicals and, and communication in our brain. It's also gonna affect how we interact with the world around us. So if something is awry there in our fallen world, that can affect our mental health, and we have to acknowledge that that's there. So we wouldn't say that, oh, you know, I make this, and this is a very, you know, maybe too simplistic, but when someone breaks their arm, they don't typically say, I'm just gonna pray over my arm and see if it gets better. And we don't say, oh, my arm's still broken, I must not have enough faith. But if there's something happening in our brain that's having effects on our mental health, we use that logic and say, well, I don't have enough faith, I'm not praying hard enough. 
why not take advantage of all that God has allowed us to understand about the brain? And we can address that in different ways, whether that's therapy, whether that's through medication, whether that's being in community, whether that's counseling. All those things have effects on our brains and can help us move forward. So just to highlight what my two colleagues have said, I also just try to also emphasize that we have to acknowledge that we have brains that God created and gave us, and those are going to affect our mental health. And we don't just let that suffering just continue. We actually take steps, as she mentioned, to try and address that through different tools that we have. If I may just add, um, and just drop a little bomb in here, American Christianity is toxic, and capitalism masquerading as Christianity is deadly. And, and that's what we witness when we end up anointing or ordaining suffering, especially in relationship to black people, that say that we should suffer, we should experience this, and just pray it away, uh, because it's functioning specifically to keep a system in place which is deadly to us and destructive to us. And so I don't think there's any way of talking about mental health in the African-American community without talking about the toxicity of certain forms of Christianity, or better yet, let me put that in quotes, Christianity or capitalism masquerading uh, in ecclesiastical garments. I think that's, that's important to, to, to realize that connectivity. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, you guys have identified a, uh, an issue, and with that, I'm going to press to get you guys to offer a solution as well. Uh, and, and that issue is, and I've experienced this as one who is trying to advocate for mental health services, even in Christian spaces, a lot of times the pushback is a very high spirituality that God's got it under control um, or that we can't trust those secular psychologists. Um, the Bible is sufficient. Uh, so for many, uh, the feeling is as though I am demonstrating my unwavering faith in God by trusting him to resolve these things, even my mental health issues. And those of you that are pushing this idea of therapy or those types of services may be dealing with less faith or trust in God. So how would you suggest we deal with that issue when this, what you're suggesting, is seen as rivaling reliance upon God? I mean, just, just to, to be blunt, I think we need to reframe how we think about the question. It, it shouldn't be faith or therapy. It should be faith and therapy. It shouldn't be prayer or medication. If medication is needed, it should be both. If someone has a heart attack and you are in that situation, you will likely pray over them when that happens, but you'll also call the ambulance. You're not going to tell the EMT folks when they come, oh, no, no, we got this under control. We're praying. We, we, we'll send you back. You put those two together, God may put someone in place who has knowledge to actually deal and address that situation. If you need to take certain medications, I mean, what's the thing that many pastors often say, don't stop taking your medication? You need to assess those things. So I know my colleagues probably have more to, to share, but I'll just, just start there and say we really just need a, a paradigm shift. And part of it is removing these artificial boundaries we've placed around God, right? God doesn't only call people to the pulpit. <laughs> God calls people to therapy practices and to psychiatry practices, right? And so when we, when we are able to imagine 
God being big enough to plant people in all of those spaces, then that dichotomy isn't there, right? In my therapy practice, we're going to pray, we're going to speak in tongues, we're going to have scriptures as affirmations, right? We do whatever we need to do, and the Holy Spirit is there too. So it is about, and this is the responsibility of faith communities, right? If you're making that mental health referral, you don't just Google, <laughs> right? Those referrals need to be based in wisdom and discernment and previous conversations that we've had with those providers so we can at least eliminate that question, right? So that's the work that we as communities have to do. That's good. I come to therapy from a background as originally being a nursing major. And so when I start therapy sessions with my clients, I explain to them that we need to deal with the whole person. We need to deal with medical issues because medical issues can impact mental health issues. So I refer them to their doctors. I want them to have updated physicals. I want them to see spe specialists when they have uh, concerns that are really needing attention. I refer them to lawyers because a lot of them are dealing with issues that are related to justice and they need to have someone advocating for them. So I believe that it's important to take a whole person approach. And I explained to them the relationship, as you said, between their brain and their body, that their brain is an organ. It can malfunction just like their pancreas. They would take their insulin if they had diabetes, so they can take the psychotropic meds that will help their brain to function optimally. I find when you talk to people with respect, when you explain to them why it would be beneficial for them to care for the total person, that they are willing to do that. And it, you see significant progress in treatment when you're dealing with the entire person. And then I integrate the word because I originally had an interest in looking at how do we use a person's belief system to enhance their therapy and their progress in therapy. And I find that using the word, I will have them read Psalm 139 to understand that God created them and everything about them, nothing is a mistake. And that brings a great deal of healing and freedom to people. And I would add that there are too many bad therapists or unlicensed therapists in the pulpit thinking that the therapists better known as pastors. Um, and pastors need therapists. They need to know those wonderful words, therapy. Um, and, and I speak, and I think that one of the reasons that uh, Sister Fields asked me to be on this panel is that I speak from the perspective of someone who had someone dear that I deeply loved and looked up to who committed suicide. Uh, my, my older sister. And because of the bravery, not only of my sister, but of my parents, my father's a pa retired pastor, he shared with the church, I'm not a therapist, but we're seeking therapy. And my daughter uh, was bipolar and also paranoid schizophrenic. This is a disease. This isn't something that God, or then you pray away. And we had her in a special program, and she was absolutely brilliant, one of the most brilliant individuals I ever met, uh, but yet she struggled with her mental health. She was nine years my senior, 
And she loved her little brother and would take me every Friday night. We'd go to the movies. She'd get me ice cream. And she would read me stories going to bed. But she never read me a children's story. She read Zora Neale Hurston. She read James Baldwin. She read Maya Angelou. So when I arrived at Morehouse, in the back of my consciousness were the words of those great literary figures from a sister who was struggling with her mental health but wanted to pass on. And the reason she went into therapy is my parents took me to therapy because they were trying to figure out why are you so angry? Because I was the one who recognized that she was having these moments and I became angry. And I said, I, could, I was nine years old, I said to the therapist, I'll only go in here if my sister comes with me. And that's how she started therapy because I couldn't articulate it uh, but I knew that there was something going on. So I say that, I share that story for anyone who is listening that believes in any way, I'm just going to pray it away. No, you need to see someone. It is not some type of spiritual act by the devil. Just as someone has cancer, just as someone has any other particular ailment, they need support. And it affects the entire family and affects the congregation if you are acting like some unlicensed therapist talking about this is happening, all we need to do is pray. No, you need to pray yourself down to someone who's got expertise to assist you and your entire family. Yeah, if I could just jump in. First of all, just thank you for, for sharing that and just um, your family story because that's so powerful and and important and needed in a lot of ways. And what your father did, I think, is also critical. But just to highlight that even further, I think you bring up a really good point of these things need to be shared so that when people are walking through it, especially leaders, that others can see that and normalize it. I think the other thing to get back to your question is more partnerships between faith leaders and mental health practitioners and providers. And those things are starting to happen more and more, and there's so much power that comes from that. So from faith leaders who are willing to work hand in hand with those who are practicing to say and share what's effective in those contexts, but also mental health providers who are now taking steps to learn more about faith traditions and learn more about the framework with which we approach things so that they can be equipped to actually meet people and not be dismissive of the faith that we have. I think those two things are critical. And the, the research and evidence shows that those who integrate both actually have more effective outcomes. So marrying the faith and the therapy or the medications is actually more effective. Some of those have even just looked at prayer in and of itself. The funny thing about those uh, studies, some of the studies suggest that those who are practitioners who don't have a faith background are actually more effective in marrying the two than those who do. So some food for thought and something we could maybe even discuss in terms of how we in church communities are approaching those things. But just to highlight everything that you said, I think it's important. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you, Dr. Moss, for sharing your uh, family story. I do want to use that to segue into our next question because it's helpful. I imagine in, in that experience uh, of, of losing a loved one, uh, it obviously would feel overwhelming. Um, and, and in those moments, I'm sure many of us can, can recognize though, uh, sometimes in life you will have an overwhelming experience, but life still goes on. And there's not this moment where you get a pause or a break or relief. I imagine some difficult things still happened even after that. So with that in mind, the, the next question is, if we're prioritizing good mental health, uh, 
it doesn't seem as if though uh, we're able to request a timeout from, from God for suffering. So why is it, for the sake of good mental health, why does God not give us pauses, timeouts from suffering or grief? Now you've asked an eternal existential question on that one. <laughs> All right, that's been asked for, for, for thousands of years in reference to that. But we do have practices that we no longer utilize because of the consumer culture we operate in. Mm -hmm. There's something called Sabbath mm -hmm. that we no longer practice. God creates the world in six days and God says, look, I'm chilling, I'm, I'm done. I'm resting and I want you to practice. I want you to do nothing on this day. Why? Not only to worship me, but you have to recharge and regenerate. The way that the world is structured, the universe is structured, that there has to be rest in it, there have to be pauses in it in order to regenerate. But we live in a culture that celebrates busyness even though you're not accomplishing anything in the process. So we have to return to the Sabbath idea, or better yet, music understands this. You got to have a rest when you play in music. There has to be pauses between the chords. Thelonious Monk understood, he said, you don't create music by the chords, it's the rest in between. And until you learn how to rest, you'll never hear the sounds of God in your life because you'll be, always be confused between noise and whether or not this is something that's anointed. So I think the, the communal piece of that too is what does it look like for us in community to give people permission to have an ebb and flow and to really articulate that and even demand. We talk about this with clergy all the time, right? There was this Barna article that came out a couple years ago now that said the optimal number of um, sermons that a, that a pastoral leader should preach in a year is 40, right? So that means a Sunday off a month, right? But even when we're talking about folks in community, whether that's lay leadership, anybody in the congregation, think about how often we demand that people show up all the time and show up in a certain way. And it's very contrary, right, to the Sabbath practice that Dr. Moss is talking about. When you combine that with our earlier conversation about we don't even feel permission to articulate when we're suffering, and we show up with the test of script when we're really hurting, it's actually a recipe for disaster. Because not only do we not have those downtimes, but we haven't even given ourselves permission to articulate when we need the downtimes because our capacity is diminished. So I think it's a joint endeavor of us as individuals being able to own that for ourselves, but also in community, recognizing that our humanness demands that we give people permission to move in different ways. I was so confused. I remember, like, God, I don't know what to believe. I don't know if I should believe this book. I don't know if you can be trusted. This is the book and the foundation that my whole life is built on. Can I really trust it? Well, this is a little story all about how my life got twisted 
turn upside down. My professor said, I'm gonna change everything you thought you knew about Jesus. And that was the first clue and the first indicator that this was not gonna be the easy A that I anticipated. As I got immersed in apologetics, I didn't see anyone like me. And I thought, man, it would be great to have this material contextualized for my people. I founded Jew3 Project to help people know what they believe and why. Because I know what it feels like to question your faith and feel like you don't know where to turn. See, I believe a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. Deconstruction is a part of you really being able to understand your faith. And that's the theme of this year's conference, Courageous Conversations 2023. Renewed faith, moving from deconstruction to reconstruction. I challenge you to meet us in Washington, D.C., August 31st to September 2nd. Register today at CourageousCombos.org. I know some of you may feel like this is a devil's advocate question, but we do, we are ultimately trying to answer the question, is Christianity bad for our mental health? So while I understand the aspect of, of Sabbath, um, uh, we can see the importance of taking a, a break from the things that you've tasked yourself with work. That's a, a, a choice to kind of fall back. But there are instances where what is grieving you or what is causing your suffering isn't necessarily of your own doing. Uh, hypothetical example, someone may lose a loved one on Sunday lose their job on Wednesday, and they already felt lonely before all that happened. And there's not necessarily something to be taken off the schedule. So in light of that specific example, let's revisit this. Why in that moment, if that prayer request maybe was, you know, okay, I just need a break. I need some, some peace. While that may happen, it doesn't always unfold that way. So with a priority, again, of good mental health, why are we not then given those reprieves? I think that's, that's a good question, but I think there's also a way to reframe that. Um, and when I say reframe it, to utilize the resources. Let's say that there are multiple moments of suffering, multiple moments of tragedy, multiple moments of pain. It's not new in the modern world. And when I say it's not new, one of the things that we do in American Christianity, we really do not practice some of the ancient practices. For example, there are certain psalms that we will never read in church because we just don't like what they say because they fussing and cussing at God. In the Jewish tradition, they're called the cursing psalms, saying that you have to have psalms or songs or words where you say, God, I don't believe you. I want to know why you didn't show up. And I'm sick of you. I mean, literally, I mean, just read this. Trust me, read the Psalms. Um, they, they start fussing at God. And here is the, the Judaic perspective. You cannot have an intimate relationship with someone until they've seen all of your emotions. And so the psalmist was designed so that you could go through the full gamut of human emotion in the midst of a destructive and colonizing world. They wanted to be able to build this relationship and say, there are moments when I love you, God, and there are moments when I was like, I don't know what you're doing. And I have to be free to say that. But in American Christianity, we say you can't question God. 
as if God is just like uh, going to be so deeply offended and stop being God because you asked a question. God's not intimidated by human questions. We are intimidated when we ask questions that go outside of our doctrine but doesn't bother God. That's really the chance. So we have resources, and I think that we continue to have to get at this American, westernized, Christian framework that I'm not allowed to experience the full gamut of my emotions. And if you try to hold something back, and I speak from experience, it will come out in other ways. I think we need to make the distinction between Christianity and churchianity. Because in churchianity, you must maintain an image. You must act like you're okay even when you've had the tragedy. You have to act like you still have faith even when you're wondering if God even exists because you've been through so many things. And I think it's important to understand that in Christianity, Jesus is very clear that suffering is a part of the experience of being a disciple. Even in the Old Testament, we see the notion, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. And so it's helpful for us to know church history and to read the people who've come before who've talked about the experience of living through the dark night of the soul when you don't know that God is there, when you don't know how things are going to turn out, when it's not turning out the way that you'd hoped and believed and prayed in tongues and fasted and given the extra offering and all of the things that people do hoping to change the outcome. There are moments when the storms of life are coming, and that is the truth. And the key is, do we use those tools? Do we use the Psalms? And so in practice, I integrate those things. I have people reading those Psalms. I have them journaling. And I tell them to lean into the grief. Don't try to keep going because people expect you to do something. Because the longer you keep going, the, the more things build, the pressure builds, and eventually you break. So if you take the time to take care of yourself, to say, I'm not okay, I need to stay in the bed today. I'm overwhelmed with grief. I need to do that. The one thing that I will say to them is give yourself a time limit. You set the time, lean into the grief so that it is not overwhelming, and then make the decision about when you are going to get up and continue. That way they're not feeling that they have to keep pressing through, pressing through until they're destroyed. And I find that that technique tends to work well with allowing people to feel the pain, acknowledge the pain, use the tools that will help them manage the pain. We've spoken about uh, many are the afflictions. Uh, We've spoken about suffering. Uh, We know God is with you on the boat, in the storm, in the fire. But we also recognize that that those experiences may not be just one time. They may be repeated. And it's very practical to realize that being in the fire multiple times can take a toll. Uh, So with that in mind, many are the afflictions, suffering, uh, repeated grief, with us agreeing that these are realities that may come with our faith, 
do those examples not then answer the question and tell us that Christianity is bad for our mental health? So I guess I would, I would again, reframing seems to be my theme for today, but I would, I would reframe that as well. So I mean, with both of these excellent examples, they've both highlighted, both in terms of the traditions and the practices and some of these practical pieces, the suffering may be ongoing. The practices also need to be ongoing. If you have a chronic illness that affects your, your body, you continue to take, for instance, if you have hypertension, you're gonna to continue to take your medication. If the hypertension continues, you continue to take the medication. You don't say this is only momentary. So I think we have to apply that same framework here as well. And to your you know, prior question about the suffering, the practices that they have talked about are ways that we can pause in that suffering to address these things. So it's not a pretty situation, it's not an enjoyable situation, but we have to continue to use those practices because as you mentioned, those things can accumulate. And again, going back to neuroscience, those accumulations have effects on our brains. But continuing those practices also have effects on our brains. And sometimes that can help us navigate when these things are happening. It can help us engage different areas of our brains that help us, for instance, regulate the emotion. Not to say that the suffering will remove itself, but that we'll have ways to navigate through it. So again, for me, I think a lot of it is reframing how do we approach the suffering that's there to continue to combat it even while we're going through it. In other words, faith without works is dead. Right. I mean, we have to we have to do to partner with God if, if we're using this frame of our spirituality. Right. We have to partner with God in our own healing. And so, yes, we pray, but there's also action that goes along with that. And those actions are critically important for even the way we're able to live out our faith and the understanding of our mental health on a daily basis. There's research that indicates that Spirituality can be helpful for mental health, but what matters is how you view God, right? So if you view God as this angry, wrathful, vengeful being, then yeah, Christianity is bad for your mental health, right? But if you view God as a benevolent provider who attends to you, then our faith supports our mental health. So one of the questions I ask in my therapy practice isn't just what do you believe, but tell me about the God that you believe in, right? Who is your God? Because that conception and how we understand how God moves and navigates in our lives is a part of the answer to this question of is it good for our mental health or not? There's an important piece that I think we also ought to add in reference to the idea of story. To begin to tell the story out of our community in reference to our spirituality and our relationship to God. The story of a woman by the name of Elizabeth who was violated several times, an enslaved woman, but her relationship with God recognized that she, her name was not Elizabeth. She said God gave her a new name as she stood in a field after being violated. And God said to her, your name shall be Sojourner Truth. Because she had a different theology in reference to that. So she was able to work through the suffering in a very different way. Second example or story is that Howard Thurman states that the most revolutionary act that ever happened to African people who were enslaved in America 
was the moment that they understood that they were loved by God because that then became a revolutionary spirit in them. And as a result of that, let me get the number right. In the United States, there was 129, no, I'm sorry, 329 slave rebellions. 324 of them happened in church. Because of their perspective of God, before I be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave. They were learning how to manage an incredibly traumatic moment with a revolutionary spirituality that saw God not as you are to be slaves, but I love you and I stand with you and I want you to flourish fully, not just in heaven, we, we misinterpret that, because the songs they were singing were talking about getting up out of the situation and moving north. That's why they would do remixes all the time. You know, they'd start singing, you know, wade, you know, in the water, and God doesn't trouble the water and all that. And, and so we have to begin to tell stories, stories that have been told over and over and over and over about how we dealt with trauma so that we get a better understanding of the theology that we need to have today. So uh, I want to remind you that we are about to transition into a moment where you can ask the panelists questions. Uh, so they'll put that on the screen for pigeonhole.at, uh, where you can submit those questions and we'll be able to uh, funnel them to the right folks. Uh, this is where I become the bad guy. So let's go around one more time. And I ha we have some moments, so I want you to uh, answer yes or no. But I'll give you time to qualify that yes or no, because obviously it's not that simple. Uh, but we do want to get a yes or no. So with that, uh, in light of all that we've discussed, we know there's good. We know there's resources, there's support, there's practices. But we've also acknowledged some of the difficult aspects as well. So with that in mind, each of you, uh, is Christianity bad for our mental health? Yes or no? And then feel free to qualify afterward. No, I don't believe that Christianity is bad for our mental health. I like what you were talking about, churchified. Um, certain forms of faith tradition can be bad for the mental health. Let, let me explain it this way. It's, it's a yes and no. I don't think Christianity is bad for your mental health. I think certain forms are bad. So, for example, let me use this story. Everybody's been to the church picnic, and somebody decides that they're going to make their own potato salad. Come on now. There has been a tradition of making this potato salad that Aunt May has been doing. Mm -hmm. But somebody who married in the family said, I'm going to put some raisins and some arugula in the potato salad. And they don't realize that little Junebug is allergic to the arugula. And so Junebug now hates potato salad for the rest of his life because he tasted potato salad that did not come out of the tradition that Aunt May did. And so then therefore he thinks that all potato salad is bad for his health. <laughs> I think that's the same way Western Christianity has functioned in reference to people of African descent because they put too much raisins and arugula in the potato salad. And as a result, many of us are allergic to that which they put in the potato salad and therefore, we now say that this is bad for our health. But if we could get back to Aunt May's potato salad, 
then we would recognize that there is power in that potato salad. <laughs> Dr. Eddie? Wow, that, that's tough to follow. <laughs> so I'll just succinctly summarize what he said by saying, no, it's not. Authentic Christianity is not bad for our mental health. No. It depends. It matters how we practice, and it matters what God we believe in. Hmm. All right. Uh, so with that, I'll transition a bit early, but we'll um, begin to take uh, some questions from the, from the audience. Uh, this one being the first. Uh, has the most votes. We see lament throughout the Bible. Are the guardrails for lament to keep it healthy, or is lament and it is what it is process. I think lament is a healthy process, right? Lament is a part of the way we grieve and acknowledge what it has cost us to lose something, right? And so I think this idea that there are ways where lament would not be healthy goes back to this conversation we're having about these external demands that are placed on us as believers. But I would argue a part of what keeps lament healthy is that we're able to do it in community. Because, you know, Galatians 6 talks about bearing one another's burdens. And when, when we're not bearing that burden alone, we don't run the risk of it becoming as extreme so that it takes us out or overwhelms us, right? And I also think it's important, too, that we're not lamenting in silence or in secret, right? So what does it mean to, to have testimony of that loss and to have the community bear witness to it as a way that supports and surrounds us in the grieving process. We also, as we've been talking about, really need to use those tools at our disposal, and that helps us to move through the process so we don't become overwhelmed by it. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree, and just to, just to amplify that a little bit, I think it gets back also to the point you made earlier about just the healthiness of that lament, because if we don't, those things that would cause us to lament, if we don't lament, they're still having effects on us, whether we acknowledge it or not. And again, I know I'm being brain-centric. As a neuroscientist, it's hard for me to break out of that mold. But to his point, if we don't take time to go through that process, it's going to come up in other ways. And it's going to come up whether we realize it or not and acknowledge it or not. Mm -hmm. So having those spaces to work through that is critical. And again, the research backs up just what she mentioned about the importance of doing that in community. Being in community, the science shows that there are certain hormones and, and peptides or, or, or different chemicals that are released in our brain that actually facilitate how we engage with another and actually help us move through stressful situations. So in those times of lament, God has given us, has designed us in a way to be in community and have positive effects for ourselves to be able to actually get to a place of more wholeness and healing. And that's not wholeness in the absence of brokenness and suffering, but wholeness in the midst of that. So again, just other examples of the ways that a lot of what we're finding out in research really backs up what we've already seen and what God has shown us through the word of God, but we're too quick to ignore those pieces or to dismiss them or pretend they aren't there. Let's jump to the next one. Uh, what mental health issues do you see most in Christian females and then in Christian males? Um, 
I'll throw this out there before the panelists jump in. Uh, from, from my experience, what's very common is, for men, uh, depression. Um, and oftentimes, particularly for pastors, it uh, goes attended to because of their high functionality. Um, it's very possible to, to stay busy with ministry and uh, neglect those things. So although it may go unnamed oftentimes for many men, black men, Christian men, uh, depression goes undiagnosed. But feel free to jump in on that. Uh, common mental health issues for Christian men and women. In my practice, I see women dealing most with anxiety being overwhelmed with the responsibilities of family, of career, of spiritual life, of dating life if they're not married, um, the expectations that they should be in a relationship, family expectations. And so the women are dealing a lot with anxiety and depression very often. Um, we find that there are data that are showing that after women have children, they're sense of their quality of life can decline because they're responsible for so many things and juggling so many balls. Um, they're also experiencing depression, a sense of not necessarily accomplishing some of the things that they wanted to accomplish in their life or the challenges that are arising in their families. Yeah, I would add for, in terms of what I've seen just in terms of uh, in relationship, I'm not a therapist. Um, depression, especially among pastors and people who minister. Uh, and we have a way of, the metrics of ministry are so deeply flawed. So you have pastors who go into ministry, women and men, and then they assume that they're supposed to have some type of I don't know, there's a certain type of building or the number of people, and then they're constantly performing to say everything is all right. And being in that high-pressure situation, then they get around each other, and they can keep on lying to each other. You know, we got 4,000 dollars. You know they're lying. Anytime you hear a preacher mention numbers, always subtract 50%. I'm just, just telling you. So, so you have this, it's just like, you know, any other, any other folks, you know, just any other, but especially for, for pastors because of this high pressure and then a vocation that no one really understands, that no one understands the, the, the pain that one has to experience of walking with people in pain and then having no one to uh, speak with about the pain that you experience day to day. And, and depression is, is real, is real. And I would venture to say that anyone who enters into ministry has flirted, danced, or listened to the song of depression. Anything else? The only thing I would add is that I have often had people come in with kind of amorphous concerns, right? Like, I don't know, but it just doesn't feel right. This can't be it, right? And often when we do some digging, there are a lot of folks who are walking around with complex trauma, 
who their either their family relationships or life circumstances or profession have gotten them to the point where they really have developed some unhealthy ways of being just to try to cope with really tragic circumstances. And so I'm seeing that more and more too. Just people who maybe they don't fit a clean diagnostic category, but when we start digging, we realize it's really a complex trauma reaction. Yeah. And I guess one more thing just to add uh, for us in considering this is um, we may have not have the language for diagnoses. The common person probably doesn't, but we do know when we have uncomfortable experiences or such and such, you just know she's difficult or he's difficult. Um, because we, the common person may not have that language, sometimes what you may be perceiving as a difficult person if the further investigation was done, may be a, a diagnosis or a personality disorder. Um, so being open to, to exploring that if possible before writing someone off is difficult. Um, next question, uh, how do you teach passages such as pick up your cross, which entails suffering, uh, and follow Jesus balanced with a high view and value of mental health? What type of suffering is God honoring? That is, that is a great, great question framed. And many people frame that, that you have to take on everything. One way of, of helping people to understand that taking up your cross, uh, making a particular decision in reference to ministry, and following uh, Jesus, but also recognizing that as you love your neighbor, you must love yourself. That there's no way that you can take up the cross unless uh, you have cared and care for yourself uh, because you won't be able to lift the cross. It's, it's similar for those who, uh, and this may be a bad analogy, but uh, in reference to sports, that you are going to have to work through some stuff if you want to achieve certain things, but that doesn't mean that you must abuse yourself in the process of training. Yeah. You must care for yourself very well in order to move forward to a different state of growth and development. So take up your cross, but to abuse yourself is also to abuse the temple, is to abuse who God made you. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be very careful of the messages that we internalize, uh, that we many times hear from other people about this taking up of the cross. Right. We have uh, several really good questions here as I'm sitting here reading. So what I'm gonna try to do is get one response for each to try to get as many out as possible. Uh, so this next one, uh, really good. Is it the responsibility of the pastor to address mental psychological issues of their congregation or should they only focus on the spiritual? Yeah, <laughs> they, they, have, they have to, I, I believe they do. Um, because- You're saying they have to only focus on the spiritual? No, 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 or no, the no. Other... Oh no, they gotta focus on, if you, to focus on the spiritual means you focus on the entire person. There's no way that you can focus on the spiritual mm -hmm. and then leave the physical and mental and emotional on the floor. Because spiritual or spirituality means the whole person. To love the Lord with your mind, your body, 
and your spirit. Mm -hmm. And so I think it is irresponsible not to deal with the fact that there may be trauma in your uh, in, 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 in your congregation or irresponsible not to deal with. There's violence right outside your door. I'm in Chicago. For me not to address violence is irresponsible and to say we must just spiritualize it. Yeah. So I think that we, in our authenticity, we must deal with the issues that we are experiencing day to day and be honest, if you don't know, refer to someone who does. There, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the important piece. Um, when I was in seminary, one of the things they said to us, and they actually had us read a case that had occurred because the clergy person ended up being sued because they had given some advice and because they were not trained in counseling, they met with one partner and they disclosed information to the other partner and it created a very complex situation. So I think it's important for pastors to recognize when they're dealing with something that is outside their scope and to make the appropriate referral. One of the things that I believe that has come out of the pandemic is an awareness of the importance of mental health. A lot of profile people have made it okay to say that it's now time to address the issue of mental health. And so you're seeing a lot of ministries begin to open a mental health component to the church. I know my own church is in the process of doing that. And I think then pastors can make that referral to people who are trained to deal with trauma because the last thing we need, and I actually had this experience during the pandemic of having a pastor respond to a situation that had occurred in our church. And the pastor's response was so inappropriate that it created trauma. And so we have to be careful about getting outside our lane. I would not speak to someone as a neuroscientist because that's not my field, but I could refer them to you. And so it's important to know you're seeing the trauma, refer to the people who are trained to address the trauma. Those changes you mentioned segue well into this next question. Uh, it feels like our culture is leaning really heavily into the self-care, you are the most important person, et cetera. How do we balance caring for yourself and not being selfish or self-centered? I think we are organized as people who need community and relationship, right? So from our infancy, there's a reason that when babies are first born, the first thing they try to do is skin-to-skin -skin contact, right? Those relationships matter at a biological level and at a relational level, and that doesn't change just because we get older and become more independent. And so it, We've been talking about the scripture, you know, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Our love of ourselves needs to be contextualized in the way we see ourselves in community, and especially as folks of African descent, right? Our, our identity is inherently connected to the communities we're a part of, and so it's important for us to think about those things not as being contrary to each other, but actually being complementary. The way we treat ourselves helps us to articulate the way we want to show up in relationship with other people. And healthy relationships actually don't force us to choose between ourselves and others. Yeah, I think that's good. Just to add briefly, I think 
there are aspects in Scripture where God calls us to care for ourselves as temples. So if he calls us to renew our mind daily, that's not something we see as selfish as necessary, and we have that time to commune. But to her point as well, we do that in community with others. Authentic community, so that people can tell us when we're being self, you know, important self-care versus selfish, and finding that balance. And it's not always an easy, an easy thing to discern, but to have those people around us. Because you can think of extremes. Obviously, there may be a need, but I'm not going to say that I'm going to go without sleep for seven days, because that's too selfish. Why would I care for myself? We would all say that's foolish because you're gonna, that's going to have negative effects on your own health. You're not honoring the temple that God has given you. So, again, finding that place with everything that they've mentioned to really find the discernment between those two. This uh, qualifier may be helpful. So it seems as if, though, the panel is very much so pro-therapy. Uh, but when we, when we start referring people out, it's important to understand the differences. Uh, there are people uh, that are able to do talk therapy professionals that can help someone talk through whatever it may be, but there are a different set of professionals that are able to offer a diagnosis, and then there are others that are able to prescribe medication. All those are, are different roles, but in being pro-therapy, um, that's not the end of the discussion. It opens up, what if that person does speak to someone, and then a diagnosis is offered, and there's more that comes from that. And that is kind of a setup for this next question, uh, being pro-therapy, uh, how should we care for someone who's dealing with a mental illness but also refuses medication and therapy? This is something that happens every week. And the way that I address it is by utilizing the approach that you were mentioning earlier. I talk to them about the importance of the mind-body connection, the, uh, the relationship between how their brain functions and the rest of their body. And I explain that if the brain malfunctions, it can cause a malfunction in their body in terms of disrupting other systems. The same is true if the body malfunctions. It can disrupt the way that the brain operates. And so by explaining, if you have diabetes, do you take insulin? They're willing to take their insulin. They don't want to die from diabetes. It's the same with your brain. We have medications now that can help regulate the way that your brain functions, and it can correct things that are malfunctioning. And so having the conversation where I am explaining to them, this is no different than you're taking your blood pressure med. It's no different than your heart medication. This is essential for your quality of life. And when we're speaking to people and explaining it in that way and removing the stigma, I then refer them to psychiatrists that look like them so that they're able to trust that they are not going to get someone who's just going to give them a medication because they can bill insurance. But I refer to psychiatrists that will say, if they don't need it, that will say, you know, you can work this out in therapy so that they're able to trust when they are given a recommendation that the person is operating in their best interest. Yeah, I, th I think that's outstanding. And then just to add another layer to that, there's also an important piece of hearing people's stories and being willing to walk with people through those concerns because there are concerns that people have in terms of if I take... So just like, you know, if you were taking a medication um, for a, a physical ailment, you usually have a conversation or often have a conversation about side effects or other options. And so it's also important to emphasize that it's not just one medication 
for a specific ailment. There are different things that work well for different people. But also walking through those things with people, people may be concerned that, oh, this may change my personality. Right. So having frank and honest conversations about that and listening to where people are coming from to, again, still emphasize how it's important, how it affects the biology, but also to have a dialogue in terms of understanding where people are coming from and the concerns they have. Both of you all helped me with something. It, it, this whole panel has. Um, I always knew my mother was just, she's just bad to the bone. Uh, and an amazing woman, but I realized she did something that you helped me and a memory just, just came back. When my sister was going through her challenges, she sat down with the entire family and explained medication and told everybody that this is what Daphne has to do. This is what we want to support her. This is just like anything. Then she went and found several of her friends and colleagues uh, who were also dealing with some of the challenges either in their family and whatnot to be able to also share. So that she said, I don't want any shame operating in this family in terms of a child we deeply love. And so I want to thank you all because I, it, it, the memory, and I, I'm going to call my mama when I get off this thing right here and talk about how bad she was because she was something else to be able to do that and to say oh, your health is important and giving us a narrative to be able to talk about that. So, so thank you all. And there are resources, and I'm sure you may use this as well, um, Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic. And what I do with my clients is if they tell me they've been prescribed a med, I will use our session to go on those sites and walk them through what that med is, how it will benefit them. Then Mayo will often, even at the end, have questions that they can ask their doctors when they go back for their next appointment, Cleveland as well. And so I also refer them to their pharmacists. You can always speak to your pharmacist, get your profile, have them look to make sure if medications are not contraindicated. Helping people to have as much knowledge about their illness, about the way that it's treated, gives them power and it gives them a voice. And that is particularly important with people of color who go to providers and so often concerns are dismissed. And so what I want people to know when they see me is that I hear them, I see them, and that their concerns are important. I'm not minimizing them. I want to be respectful about that, but I want to refer them so that they know how to take charge of their illness and manage it and know that it doesn't have to take charge of them. I do want to, thank you, thank you. I do want to allow you to, the panelists, to kind of counsel for a very specific thing here. Uh, what I've observed is we are kind of breaking the stigma as it relates to seeking therapy and so on and so forth. But I have to be honest, there is still very much so this huge resistance. Yeah, you can go to therapy, but I don't want you or I don't want to take something called an antidepressant. I don't want to be on something called an antipsychotic. Um, so there's a resistance to medication itself. When we consider culturally competent therapy, there are a lot more black therapists out there, that's great. But if, I'm, if, if the numbers are still the same, the people that are able to offer those diagnoses and medication are more so psychiatrists and psychiatric practitioners. And I believe more recently, there's less than 3% of the psychiatrists in our nation are black. Mm -hmm. 
So when we start looking at people getting medication, uh, that's a much different conversation. So with the lack of, of tending tend, toward a lack of availability of, of black psychiatrists, uh, the stigma of they're just peddling drugs and the stigma around not wanting to take those medications, but also self-medicating with things like alcohol. Um, how would you counsel people who are struggling with that next step of taking what's been prescribed to you or, or trying to find somebody that can? Yeah, so first let me just, I wanna provide a little bit of clarity that any licensed therapist, licensed psychotherapist can also do the diagnostic piece. In fact, that's a part of that initial session that you go to with the therapist. It's called a diagnostic interview. And so a lot of what we do in therapy is actually educating people about their diagnosis. You've been talking about that, right? And that piece is crucial because when we refer to a medical provider, we want the client to be empowered to talk about their symptoms, to understand what their diagnosis looks Looks like and and there's a difference between understanding what the diagnostic criteria is in the manual and being able to say this is how this diagnosis impacts me right so we want both those things to be able to occur second the vast majority of the people prescribing psychotropic meds in this country are not psychiatrists they're general practitioners and so that is helpful because if you already have an established relationship with your GP, you can start there. You don't have to go find a whole new provider. And so for me, just being able to say to people, why don't you start with your general practitioner has been helpful mm -hmm. because it feels daunting to go find a whole new provider. And there's a crisis in psychiatry in this country where it can take two or three months yeah. for an initial appointment with a psychiatrist. Part of what we want to do is lessen the time between, between when people realize they need help and when they can get that they help, help. Yeah. right? And so if that means going to your community clinic or going to Planned Parenthood, or going to your GP, right? Anybody can kind of start the process for you, and then often general practitioners will refer to a psychiatrist. The other thing that we can do, and you know, we do this with any of our medical providers, we wanna find somebody who's a good fit for us and who will listen to our concerns. And so just like with a therapist, you might have to try a couple of therapists before you find somebody you feel comfortable with. The same is true for medical providers, right? I'm not gonna go to a provider who won't take enough time to listen to me and to understand my concerns. And that's another way we advocate for ourselves is to say, this provider actually cannot do what I need them to do. And their advanced degrees don't mean they can treat me in any kind of way. Right, And so when we advocate for ourselves in that way, I think we're better able to manage and talk through some of those valid concerns that people have about the medication process. And I also actually, one of the things I looked to do when I first started private practice was to make partnerships in the community with providers that I could trust who look like the majority of my clients. And when I'm making the referral after I explain to the client why I believe it would be beneficial, I actually call the office with them. So we do the call together because I've discovered that that gets them a quicker appointment. They will get them in that week often because I'm making the referral and I have a partnership with them. So that enables them to get the care that they need more expeditiously 
than if they were trying to navigate in the community by themselves. All right. Well, thank you for your contributions. Before we go, I'd like to open it up. We do have about two minutes left. Uh, in closing, are there any words that you'd like to share in light of our conversation? Yeah, one concept that I just wanted to highlight, because I think it's an important concept that we've talked about, is about good mental health in general. And the point I want to make is that that is not defined by the presence or absence of mental illness. Because I think sometimes we assume that if you have a mental illness, and one in five individuals in this country is currently living with mental illness, so that's a lot of us, that that means that you don't have good mental health. There can be people who are living with mental illness, I think we talked about bipolar, and who have good mental health because they are navigating it and addressing it. Similarly, they may be people without a diagnosed mental illness who have poor mental health and who are letting things um, become overwhelming or can't navigate. So I think it's been behind a lot of what we've been talking about, but it's also important just to articulate and to say outright so that we can have that approach that these, these are important conversations, the mental illness diagnosis are, are important, but they're not the end of the story. Yeah, and just to add to that, since we're going in this direction, uh, you kind of learn as you go, if we're going to lean into mental health conversations, then not stigmatizing people. Uh, a mistake I've often seen made is you convince someone to go to therapy, uh, they get a diagnosis, but then from that point forward, anytime you have an uncomfortable interaction with them, the diagnosis is brought up. And that can really stigmatize this whole thing that we've talked about. So being very careful about uh, opening that conversation up. Anything else before we go? So my final thought would be that when we look at the Bible, we actually see all these opportunities right there to talk about mental health, right? So Dr. Moss talked about the Psalms. We think about Elijah. We think about Moses dealing with anxiety, right? So it is actually low-hanging fruit to talk about mental health in the church. And what it takes is us being responsible in the way we handle those passages and think about the application of those principles and the way our communities live. Mm -hmm. All right, one last thing. Uh, if you are looking for additional support, resources, um, mental health services, even specifically from a Christian perspective for you individually or for your church, feel free to drop by the whole Brother Mission table in the lobby. Please join me in thanking our panelists Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jew3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. 
So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.